Hello and welcome to episode 269 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now today's episode is a bit different because I'm joined by a producer, also an entertainment lawyer and an actor in the incredible cult classic Picnic at Hanging Rock. It's a different guest for me. We talk law, we talk all subjects between contracts, negotiation, what her acting career is like and how she's spending her life now. And Karen is absolutely lovely and that interview will be coming up in just a couple of minutes time. But just before we get to that interview, we can't avoid talking about the last episode. I was joined by Bert McCracken from The Used. Right now, as we're sitting here, my most downloaded episode this year. Astonishing stats, considering it's only been out for two days. It's blown up. I've seen so many people jumping on board, new followers on Instagram and Twitter, so many comments, people sharing it, and I can't believe the response. So I just want to say now a huge heartfelt thank you to each and every one of you. It's one of my favourite interviews. I'm so proud and I'm so glad that you guys all enjoyed it too. But before we get to today's interview, I've just got one other thing to do, and that's give a big shout out to the sponsor of this podcast, Richer Sounds. If you're in the market right now for a brand new TV or home cinema system or a Sonos deck, whatever you're looking for, hit them up on richersounds.com because those guys sponsor the podcast each and every episode. And it's because of those guys I can get out there and keep this podcast hosted on all these different directories. So a massive thanks to Richer Sounds. Right. Let's get to the interview now. So here it is. Here's me and Karen talking all things film. Karen, thank you for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Hi, nice to be here. First up, what I'd like to do is take it right back to the very start. Now, before your legal career uh, or your acting career, when you were growing up, what was it you wanted to be when you were older? Was it a movie star or was it someone (laughs) different to that? What was your kind of dreams and ambitions at a young age? Um, I think when I was young, I think I wanted to be a writer. I loved books and reading and um, I I really, I think I wanted to do that, but I wasn't sure. And then when I was um, in my teens, I started to get interested in theatre, like attending theatre and, and watching plays and going to theatre in Sydney and um and so that became something I was really interested in. Not necessarily, I hadn't worked out what I wanted to do with it, but um, so, you know, and by the time I just found my way into Picnic at Hanging Rock and then I found my way at university, but I I did study English literature at university. So I think I was always drawn to books, really. And you, you said then you found yourself at Picnic um, at Hanging Rock. How did, how did that opportunity come about for you? Were you in the right place at the right time or did you know someone or did you go out and actively look for a role? Um, well, it's a strange story, really, in a way. I, um, I, uh, the day that we graduated from high school is sort of like a prank day in Australia. And we were, uh, I went to a girls' school and a bunch of us were running around in the suburb where I lived in Sydney and there were two guys at a a coffee shop and we were squirting them with water pistols because you know that's what (laughs) we did (laughs) and they ended up talking to us and one of them ended up coming to our speech day and he was a kind of radical journalist by the name of Richard Neville who had um, had been a student you know journalist and whatever and his friend Martin Sharp is a 
pretty famous in Australia pop artist who had lived in London and done all sorts of, you would, if you looked in a, you would know some of his sort of psychedelic posters he did. Anyway, he ended up that he lived at the end of my street and he and I ran into each other uh, quite often and uh, after that. And he said, um, you know, my agent, because he was a poster artist and so yeah. he's casting for a film and you would be really good for it. And um, so it was through him that I went to a casting call. And then from the casting call, they chose me and I did an actual screen test. And I remember doing that. And it was so like amazing. I came home, my brother said, why have you got all that makeup on your face? <laughs> and I said, because I did a screen test. And then I, you know, that was how it happened. So it was, it was really luck. I didn't really mean to be an actor, although my mother had been an actor for a while and I had been in school plays and things. So I had a bent towards it, but it was not a career I was planning on following. And then obviously when you were in the film, can you remember the reaction of watching yourself back for the first time when it was all wrapped? I mean, now obviously we're getting a re-release and uh, people mm. will revisit this classic, but do you remember that first initial reaction when you saw yourself on the big screen? Well, the first reaction was, you know, they had, I mean, obviously it was shot on film and they would have dailies, which was, you know, the way it used to be, like the day film would be processed and then it would be screened for the director and the DP and so on. And I was invited to attend it and I was absolutely horrified. I thought, like, oh, my God, I'm so awful and look at me. And, you know, I think it's why they say actors shouldn't really watch themselves. So I, I never went again to the dailies and that was it. And, and that was only a scene, the first scene we shot, which was the girls crossing the creek when the boys are admiring them. Yeah. It was the very first scene we shot. And so it wasn't even like something I was doing a lot of acting in, you know, it was just, but I was horrified. So I didn't um, watch it again until I saw it at the premiere. And I, that was just a blur to me. The only time I really remember seeing the film and actually watching it in a considered way was much later in New York when there was a re-release and I was living in New York and I went to um I spoke actually at a screening of it and I was probably 30 years old at that time that's when I really saw the film when I wasn't just so self-conscious and your career transisted into sort of the entertainment world of still being involved in the industry but as a lawyer and a producer so you weren't actually mm -hmm. you know you're more behind the camera and behind the scenes mm -hmm. and everything were you kind of always wanting to do that even when you were starting to do the acting work? Were you always kind of conscious of being on set and learning how the ways work and how films need to be produced? Were you always kind of having that idea or was it a bit later on that you thought, actually, this is a complete change and I want to try and do something completely refreshing and a whole new just kind of challenge? Mm. Um, that sounds really good, but that's not the way it happened, really. <laughs> I think that, um, what happened was, I guess, so I was in the film and then I had an agent and I was thinking, oh, maybe I should do acting and, uh, you know, and, but I got into university and I was doing a joint law and um, arts degree, uh, which is quite a long degree. And I was studying English literature and art and stuff. And all my friends were sort of in the creative industries. They were artists and actors and stuff like that. So that was the world my friends were. Uh, but I just, I also very much wanted to be independent and be able to support myself, you know, feminist days, right? Of course. And so on, when I graduated and when I got towards the end, I just said, you know, I should just go to law school, finish law, 
and maybe there's something I can do in law that's related. I didn't really know what it was because entertainment law wasn't really a thing in Australia at the time. And um, I was actually just, again, really fortunate in a way that when I applied to the big firms for jobs <clears throat> out of law school, um, I was accepted at a firm that had what they called a media law department. And um, it, it represented big one of the big uh, media groups in Australia, which had television and radio and stuff like that. And I was doing more like defamation and libel type of things originally, but they also had a film lab. And so when I expressed interest in being involved in that part, because they were investing in films, I got into it. And then the firm also represented Kennedy Miller, who made the Mad Max films. So that's how I really, I was able to, within the firm, say, I want to do the contracts for the actors and things like that. And the first actors agreement I got to do was Tina Turner's for Mad oh, Max wow. Beyond the Thunderdome. <laughs> That's an amazing film. And uh, yes. obviously with the, the kind of remake that we saw from George Miller, um, everyone still goes back and watches those classics now. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, and so to me that was so, it was like, okay, well, this is what I want to do because this way I can combine my interest in film because I still love films and, you know, always have and uh and in a job that i like and that i can earn a real living and be independent and ultimately i after a few years there i said well i want to come to the states because that's where they really do this stuff and that's what i did that's amazing and you were involved in stuff like helping the production of stuff like was it um sylvester salone's cliffhanger is that right oh that's one of them yes i mean over the years I mean, I because I my firm is the headquarters are in New York, although I'm in LA. I opened yeah. an office for us out here a long time ago now. But when I started, it was really the independent film world that I was in, at representing producers who did. I mean, the the first film I worked on in New York was Walker with Ed Harris, which was um, made in Nicaragua. Yeah, and I and I did a lot of you know indie films. I will call them. I worked on like crazy films like The Bad Lieutenant, directed by Abel Ferrara, Light Sleeper, directed by Paul Schrader. But we also had some more commercial clients, like um, that was Pioneer, invested in Carol Co., which made all those big films. And so we did work on Cliffhanger, which was, an, you know, I worked on a number of films that had really like serious problems, which was also very interesting. In the case of Cliffhanger, the problem was it, it was in the mountains, but it was supposed to snow, and that was the only year there was no snow whatsoever. <laughs> I tell you, what, talk about being cursed. Yeah. Yes. Well, they're remaking the film though. Yeah, woman, every film know. gets remade eventually, doesn't it? At the moment. <laughs> every time I go on the internet, there's well, another remake announced. But yes, as as Picnic at Hanging Rock was remade into a TV series in Australia, which I refused to watch. I was going to say, I've, not, <laughs> I've never watched it, and I don't think I ever will. <laughs> so I suppose with your job, is it like every day must be completely different? I mean, you must be going from all different types of um, people within the industry, speaking to different producers and contract people, and it must be a real, I can't imagine that any day is the same. No, that's true, and it's also changed a lot lately. I mean, I, as I said, I started in independent films, yeah, mostly in New, in New York, which was the real heyday, like the 90s, Hal Hartley and... Jim Jarmusch and all those filmmakers. I started in those lower budgeted films representing mostly the producers. 
then I, I sort of moved into, I used to go to the Sundance Film Festival. I represented some filmmakers, mostly women. But then we got, started to go to the finance side of the films and representing the financiers and the distributors of films. And um, so that got a lot more technical, a lot more, you know, finance oriented. But I think the biggest thing that's changed is just the business. And, you know, I do a lot more TV now, streaming and TV. I still work on films, but it's not as 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 uh, common as it used to be. It's harder to finance independent cinema, particularly. I, I see that, and I talk to a lot of directors and actors, and I think the TV world, as great as it is, and we've never been so lucky to have at our fingertips such a range, it's ruthless. Mm. Even the successful shows that you love on Netflix, I try and not get too attached to anymore because I just know mm. that I'm never going to get to series two or three the way that the world is. <laughs> Yeah, it's also a different form. My husband is from Iran and he's a filmmaker who went to film school in London, actually. So that's something people always say, what do you have in common? I said, we're both Anglophiles, you know, we're <laughs> both from the colonies in a way. And um, But he is a great lover of cinema and he watches films. He watches TV, but, it, you know, he's really made me understand that, you know, a film is just, it's it's a it's a unit and it's a different thing and it's a different skill. And a continuing series has many things to of interest, but a film is a film is a film. And, you yeah. know, it's, um, it's a, it has its own arc and, and it's just a world. And, you know, I think that was what was always, it remains great. You know, you go to the cinema, you enter the world and you go through it and it ends. It's an amazing yeah, I like journey, that. and I kind of look at it as like my little kind of religious home that I can go to. I can shut the door. No one else is going to bother me for that two hours, and I can just get lost in something and then kind of yeah. go back to the real world. Yes, and I think TV can be like that too. It can certainly be addictive and the streaming series and stuff, and that some of them are just so fantastic, obviously, and that allows you to do different things, just different world. And that's when I watched Picnic and Hanging Rock again. It was like, wow this is an amazing film and it has such an atmosphere and you're drawn into it and you don't know, you know, what is this world you're in? And then it ends. And what happened and what happened to the girls? And it's, that's why I think it's lasted and why it's a kind of cult film. People rediscover yeah. it. And over here in the UK, especially second sight, are really getting an incredible name behind them. And they've got some great movies out and they've had the big classics as well but they're also mm. bringing these films that not everyone's quite aware of so you mm. know they had texas chainsaw massacre just come out which everyone loves and is a cult classic for a reason mm. but then people will trust in the label and then will go and buy these smaller independent films or not so successful films and really discover these new kind of classics that they didn't oh. even know existed so it's they're, they're doing great things at the moment i think they've got oh, a really that's good great really good i'm balance. looking forward to getting my box <laughs> yeah and having all the nice artwork and the nice box set and everything else yeah, it's, uh, great. they spend a lot of time in their presentation as well so you'll be you'll be made up with it and it's something to keep isn't it and be like that was me yeah for the kids they, exactly. they, they think it's very amusing that i was in a movie it's very cool well i've never <laughs> really um i've had actors i've had directors i've had cinematographers but i've never had a an entertainment lawyer on the podcast mm. and if there is someone that's listening today that is at film school or thinking about mm. going to university to study law what advice would you give someone because it's it's interesting to me because it's someone new and it's someone from a background that i've not spoke to but um what advice do you give to someone that is looking to go down the path that you took 
Well, I mean, it, it's it's hard to find your way to a job at the end of it necessarily, but um, I mean, you have to go to law school and you have to do study all the law, but you'll end up using, in fact, only, <clears throat> I mean, unless you become a litigator and go to court, and which is another, you can do that in the entertainment area too, but I'm a transactional entertainment lawyer, so yeah. I draft and negotiate deals and contracts and things of, and give advice on that sort of thing. So, um, you know, you can go down either path, but it's really a matter of go to law school and then work out what areas you're interested in and try and get like internships and things while you're at law school in, uh, it depends also where you are. I mean, it has been kind of geographical, obviously, you know, many more jobs in New York and LA than anywhere else in the US. In, in the UK, many more jobs in London than there will be jobs in other places, but far fewer. So it's a matter of joining societies with when you're at law school that are in the area. And sometimes they don't have an entertainment law thing, but they will always have a copyright or intellectual property, which is very much part of, you need to understand copyright and protect copyright and get rights to, how do you get rights to create a film? Picnic at Hanging Rock is based on a novel. They had to option the novel. They had to acquire, negotiate a deal with that writer uh, uh, who wrote the, the the book and then hire the screenwriter. And, you know, the rights aspect of how you put together all the rights and so on. So I think it's a matter of, um, you know, going to law school, finding the societies or the groups and join the film club. If you go to a, a university that has a film school, that can be great because then you can be part of their film clinic or whatever. And, um, and finding a job is just you get whatever you can. I think also the jobs have changed, you know, because when I was coming up in the States, it was like, oh, you can work with a studio. But the film studios aren't the companies now. Now it's streamers. And there was a period where it was really the Silicon Valley companies. It was Apple and Google and these, you have to follow. And I mean, but there it's, it can be very specialized because there are people who do just music yep. and that's their thing. I just like filmed entertainment, you know, and which, but I, I have done other things, all the peripheral things like merchandising and video games and those sort of, you know, and people, but uh, the basics are contract law, and copyright law. It blows my mind, and you going through all the process. I think some people don't even realise how much it's kind of goes on behind the scenes, and how much legal stuff is taking part to see one of their favourite TV shows or films. I don't think no, they have any idea of just how much is taking place. Well, that's good. You don't want that interfering with your enjoyment of the game. I I, I must say that somebody told me I should watch a new show i think it's on netflix called tetris and it's about it's oh it's karen on uh, it's on apple tv yeah apple it's, tv yeah yeah it's, it's karen and they said i said why should i watch it and they said because it's about getting the rights to a game <laughs> it's a it, it, the story is a, like the story of the it's not obviously it's a thriller yeah. in a way but but it's about everyone trying to control the intellectual property in this game tetris I've and not I seen said, it yet, okay. but the reviews are fantastic and everyone is saying it's yeah. brilliant. So uh, it's on my list. You know, everyone has a list of piles and stuff to watch and everyone keeps telling me, like, <laughs> get that high up on the pile. Yeah, exactly. 
what I do on the podcast, and it's my final question for you today, uh, and I'm putting you on the spot a bit, but what I like to try and do to keep the podcast as original as I can is ask the guest to choose the piece of music that's played at the very end of the episode. So once we've put this episode out uh, for the world to listen to, they can go on Spotify or Amazon Music or Apple Podcasts, and at the very end, a piece of music is played, but every guest that comes on gets to choose their favourite song or a song that means something to them. So... I am putting you on the spot, but is there a song today, Karen, that you absolutely love that would be the perfect outro song for you? Well, it's not the perfect outro song for me, but if you just ask me what is a song that I truly, truly love, I think it has to be something by Leonard Cohen. And um, and even and I wouldn't choose, even though I love Hallelujah. Actually, I will choose Hallelujah for a reason, but it has to be a specific version. It has to be John Cale's version okay. of Hallelujah because John Cale is a friend of my husband and wrote the music for a number of his films, and he's just a wonderful, wonderful singer. So it would be John Cale's version of Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Amazing. I love um, Jeff Buckley's version as well, which is oh, absolutely very incredible. Different, very different, too. but uh, what a vocalist. But um, Famous Blue Raincoat is one of my most listened to songs by Leonard Cohen. I think mm. the guy's a genius. I think his yes. songwriting and his lyricist is just unbelievable. So uh, now what will happen is I'll spend the rest of the day listening to all of his stuff while I choose your <laughs> version and uh, go down a rabbit hole for the rest of the day. But that's a good way to spend the day. All right. Well, you should watch the movie, the documentary Hallelujah, which is yep. about the song. Yeah. Okay, I will do that. Put that on your Another list one. As well. Yeah, look at my list. <laughs> my list is sitting here. Look, my list is massive. I can't keep adding to it. But um, I really appreciate Sorry. your time today. Uh, thank you so much for coming. I know it's quite early for you over there. Um, now I get to go to work and find out what's on my plate. <laughs> but yes, I hope it's a good day ahead. And um, right. I, I look forward to you receiving your package, uh, package of panic. So do I picnic uh at the hanging rock and honestly you'll be in for a treat because uh it's it's beautiful okay well thank you very much mark nice to meet you so there it is there's my interview with me and karen what an amazing woman so different to some of my interviews i've done so humble so down to earth and just so real and that's all i ask for on mark and me when guests are like this it's just beautiful on today's episode, you heard us talking all about the brand new release from Second Sight, Picnic at Hanging Rock. It really is a cult classic and it's available now. And stay tuned on all my social media channels over the next few days to be in with an opportunity to win the 4K deluxe edition of this because it's absolutely stunning. I want to give a big thank you for Karen for coming on the show. It means hell of a lot and I really appreciate your time. Also, I want to give a big shout out to another sponsor of the podcast, The Folio Society my favourite company out there for books. I'm not going to take any sponsor for this podcast and just talk about them for the sake of it to get a big paycheck. That's not what I've done and I've never done it for five years. But what I have done with Folio Society has got an amazing partnership and I'll be giving you guys at home the opportunity to win some beautiful books. And if you want to check out what you can win, go on foliosociety.com, look at all their amazing books and I'll start surprising you all at home with some competitions over the next few days. Also, if you've enjoyed today's episode, I say it on every episode now, but it's so important, hit the share button, hit the retweet button, on Instagram, post it as a story, or if you can't be bothered, just hit the like button. It helps more people see it and then jump on board and start following Mark and me. 
things aren't slowing down anytime soon. I've got some incredible festivals coming up, which means loads of specials and a brand new episode in only a couple of days' time. So until then, look after yourself, take care, and I'll speak to you all very soon. I heard there was a secret court that David played and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. She tied you to a kitchen chair, she broke your throne, she cut your hair, and from your lips she drew the hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. I've walked this floor I used to live alone Before I knew you I've seen your flag On the marble arch But love is not a victory march It's a cold and it's a broken
Hallelujah. 